We're going tonight to the book of Psalms, the 48th chapter. It is a privilege uh, this evening to have Brother Balt with us, and very glad that he is here with Brother and Sister Snow. Appreciate his work in the kingdom of God. Amen. Welcome, Elder. We're glad to have you tonight. Psalm, the 48th chapter, our focus 52 verse this week is 48 and 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Could we read that together one more time? For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Amen. Lord bless you. You may be seated tonight. Somebody say amen to the reading of the word of the Lord. Praise God. Amen. So this psalm that uh, we have read from tonight, Psalm the 48th chapter, I'm going to try to teach a little bit to you uh, this evening about where all this lines up with. This is the third of three psalms that were written to commemorate the defeat of the Assyrian army in the days of Hezekiah. And so that's a little bit of the background of kind of what it is. And the psalm is actually a work uh, of the eyewitnesses that were there to see this transpire. Now, it's up for debate, you know, how the psalms are, if you've ever studied. Uh, if it doesn't say at the top that it's a psalm of David, it leads to a lot of speculation. So you've got to kind of get historical record for who they believe wrote the psalm. But more than likely, it was either the king or it was Isaiah the prophet that wrote this psalm, very powerful in its essence. I could hardly imagine the relief in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people when they stood in victory. And just a few days before that, it was as though their doom was certain, that their defeat was certain, that you might as well have just wrote it down in the record books that the Assyrian army was greater, they were more powerful, and there was no way in the whole wide world that the Jewish people would stand uh, when it was all said and done. However, we know that even though the Assyrian army had threatened to destroy the Jews and threatened to destroy Jerusalem, we know for sure that the Lord was on their side. And that what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for the good of his people. And so there is great, great praise that we can draw from this chapter. If you would like to somehow bring it into correlation with your own life, we could somehow connect the dots to the New Testament and ask the question like this. If God be for us. Who can be against us? Now, Sennacherib, and there won't be a pop quiz about all these names. You ever wonder what, what happened to like James and Jeff and Bill and Bob? And... He's a grandchild. I think I'll call him Sennacherib. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, did not doubt for one moment that given the formidable Assyrian army that the conquest of Jerusalem was a foregone conclusion. It was a done deal. 
He believed that Hezekiah could not win. He believed that he had it all wrapped up and it was over. As a matter of fact, the Assyrian army was well versed in what it would take to siege the great city of Jerusalem. And they were noted in history, if you had time to study at all the Assyrian army, they were noted to be city takers. They were noted to be an army that without any struggle whatsoever would lay siege to a city that would dominate and destroy. And there was, truthfully, some difficult terrain, and we'll talk about that for just a moment, around Jerusalem that made it a little more difficult than the average city for them to conquer. That was a fact, but it never did cross Sennacherib's mind that just because it was a little difficult to get to that they could not conquer it. As a matter of fact, the defeat was so overwhelming against Sennacherib that the author of the psalm hits on four very high notes that I think are worthy of our time. And I don't know if I'll get to all four of them tonight. I hope I will. I sit in my office today trying to figure out how in the world I was going to get to all of them because I may get stuck at the very beginning. But what we know for sure is there were four things that were standing against Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. It was, first and foremost, the difficult terrain that warned the Assyrians. It was a warning to them. This is going to be a difficult city. It was the terrain that was a difficult foe for them. The second was the disturbing truth, and I want to get to this, that worried the enemy. The third was the deadly terror that weakened the enemy. The fourth was the disastrous troubles that wasted the enemy. But I can't get to any of those without talking to you first about the terrain. Why this city? Why Jerusalem? It was a tough proposition for any army. It didn't matter how seasoned they were. It didn't matter how many cities they had taken before. It could only be approached from the north side. For on the east and the south and the west, it was surrounded by deep valleys. Some of them were steep and at that time terribly hard to climb. It's almost like when you look at the city of Jerusalem, it's almost like the Lord knew what he was doing. It's almost like you could just see the hand of God that was resting on this city. It's truthfully like God has always had his mind on his people. Now I know people don't want you to believe that. But in the days where the enemies that surrounded them from the Philistines to the Assyrians, they were always wanting to conquer. It was almost like the Lord rested his hand in creation on this place called Jerusalem. And there he rested his hand on them. So you've got the height of the city from the valleys on the south, the east, and the west, and north was the only way that they could come. And then he gave wisdom to men to put towering walls, which created even more height. So for anybody to come against Jerusalem because of the terrain, they were foolish. However, when you are Sennacherib, and you feel like you've got more to gain than you do to lose, and you feel like you're more powerful than anybody else in the earth, and you feel like you're willing and ready and whatever you got to do to tackle into God's people, then that's what you're going to do. 
then you mount an army and you go to the north side of Jerusalem and you say, I don't care if they see us coming or not. We're going to attack from the north side and we're going to conquer. Those walls don't intimidate me. And I want to tell you tonight that from time to time, the enemy gets the same idea in his mind about you. He thinks he knows right where to come against you. He feels like he knows where the boundaries of all your walls are. And he feels like there may be a breach, a weak place in the wall that he can attack you. So the enemy feels like he's going to conquer you. But here is the truth that must be known. The difficult terrain, however difficult it was, was really not as big of a deal as the God who defended the city. So you can look at the walls and you can look at the valleys and you can look at the difficulty and you may think that there's a way in, but Sennacherib, there's something you need to know. This is not just any city and it's not just guarded by any deity. It is guarded by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The opening of this chapter, verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city. Somebody say the city. The city of our God in the mountain of his holiness. You just thought, Sennacherib, that you were attacking the city of Hezekiah. But what you need to know is that it is the city of our God. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised in the city of our God. There's something you need to know about Jerusalem, and I believe it to this day, but ancient Jerusalem is not like other cities. It's not like Athens and Carthage and Rome. It's not like the cities of the Greeks and the Romans and the Phoenicians. It's not like any other city. Because Jerusalem is the city of God. That was one key factor that Sennacherib forgot that the walls are not going to be your biggest obstacle and the mountains you climb are not going to be your biggest trouble but when you step foot into the walls of that city there is a power that's greater than the people well but pastor you need to know if you have ever studied history you need to know that Jerusalem was overtaken. You need to know that. You need to know that, that the Babylonians and the Romans in history were both able to take the city. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd like to talk to you about that. If you go study when the Babylonians and the Romans both took control of Jerusalem, you're going to find one common thread that runs through the defeat of the city. It is that they forgot their God. It's the same power that we see revealed in the Old Testament as the Lord brings him out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And there was there a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Every morning when they threw open the tent door, there was manna laying on the ground. When they griped about the manna, God sent quail. And while there was yet quail in their teeth, they griped about it. And how is it that in a 40-year period there arose, Joshua said, a generation who knew not the Lord nor the wonderful works which he had performed while they're chewing on the manna and have quail in their teeth that God had provided. Somebody forgot to give God the glory. 
You must know this when I tell you tonight that I believe it for Jerusalem and I believe it for this nation. Any nation that forgets their God and turns their back against their God, they cannot blame God when the city is pummeled and laid. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Is there anybody here tonight that still believes that sin is a reproach to any people? There's a principle that must be dealt with. We cannot look at the worldliness of the world, if I could say it that way. We can't look at the worldliness of the world and expect to blame the worldliness of those on the outside for the reason why the hand of the Lord is against His people. What you must know is that the hand of the Lord was never manipulated by the wicked. We read stories like Sodom and we feel like it was destroyed because of the wickedness of Sodom. But you can't refute and you can't ignore the idea that was presented when Abraham came to the Lord and he said, Would you save the city if I could find 50 righteous? He said, I'll save the city for 50 righteous. And all the way down, he said, Lord, what would you do if I had 10? What would you do if we could find 10 people? And the Lord said, I'd save the city. Understand me when I tell you it was not the wickedness of Sodom that destroyed the city of Sodom. It was the righteous that knew better but refused to walk in righteousness. So while we stand around and talk about the world and all their rights and all the things that they're trying to take away and what the Supreme Court's going to do and they're going to make this legal, I want to tell you right now that the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage has never had the same effect as an apostolic church that'll turn a blind eye to homosexuality because we're desperate for talent. So you can talk about the world making it legal. You know what? It's never been off limits to the world. As long as there have been people, there's been perversion. As long as there's been people, there's been idolatry. But the issue was not the fact that idolatry existed. The issue was that adultery, uh, idolatry was allowed to enter in to the hearts of the people in the city of God. I don't know how to say this tonight without just coming out and saying it. And I hope I don't offend anybody when I do. But that's why we stand so strong and we declare openly that there are some things that happen in the world that ought to never happen in the church of the living God. There's a reason why we preach what we preach and we believe what we believe. I don't care about fitting in with this world. I don't care about fitting in with their agenda. We are different from the world. There is a difference between us and them. I don't understand compromise because compromise brings us to a place that I guess what they're saying is if you can't beat them, join them. So we can look at the Assyrians and we can say, oh, well, man, they're difficult. You know, this is a big deal. I mean, if Sennacherib gets in here, we're in trouble. And so we begin to change the strategy and say, look, Sennacherib has a, a mightier army than we do. The Assyrians are more mighty than we are. So what we need to do is become friends with them. This happens in the scripture. You just watch. As Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes down. And they began to enter into mutual obligation, shaking hands. 
joining hands, if you would, with Egypt. It's like we don't want the enemy to defeat us, so we're going to join in on their game. But here's what we cannot forget is that prophetic greatness is on the church. It was declared before the church was established that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And with that in mind, you've got to understand it was never the will of God for us to join hands with the world to keep the world from destroying us. The world will never, you mark that down, they will never destroy the church. Yeah, but pastor, if, 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 if they vote a certain way and they do this and they do that, look, I'm going to tell you, we got to get over the idea that God's an American. You need to know that God's got a church in Muslim lands where it's illegal to be a Christian. Come on, somebody. God's got a church in communist China. God's got a church in Saudi Arabia. Are you telling me that the government of the world is going to shut down the church? If they do, then this precious book is a lie and there is no truth in it. I choose to stand and believe tonight that if God is for us, I choose to believe it. I choose to believe that our cities, the city of God is powerful. Not just because of the walls that surround us, but because of the God that is within us. The thing about God's power that you must understand is that it's not fading power. It is not some kind of temporary power. It is abiding power. It's power that does not leave. It's power that does not lift unless it is uninvited. And when the power of God is uninvited, then his absolute power is dismissed. And at that point, you're fighting for yourself against enemies that you couldn't defeat on your own if you did your best. And that's what scares me oftentimes about the testimony of the people of God. Is we get to the place where we feel like we're smarter than everybody else and got it all figured out. Just about the time we do, the Lord says, okay. I'm not really sure you want what you've asked for. But because that's what you want. I'm going to lift my hand off of you. I'm going to let you see what it feels like. You know, I don't want this nation to have the hand of God lifted off of us. I don't. I don't want the hand of God to be lifted off of us. But here's what I do know. That once the hand of God has been lifted off of this nation, I believe we're going to see. And I don't have time to preach all this tonight. But I believe because his power is so absolute that once he lifts his hand off of this nation... That we will then begin to see the revelation of men in our mainstream media that are going to be a little bit more powerful than the average bear. And I believe that we're going to see rise at that point the man of sin. That the only thing that is keeping the Antichrist restrained at this point, in my opinion, is a praying church that keeps the hand of God upon the church. I don't believe, I don't believe. That while the church is in alignment with the will of God, that the Antichrist can just show up whenever he wants to. If that was true, then that would mean that he controlled the narrative. And you don't read anywhere in Revelation that the Antichrist is going to control the narrative. It is not the revelation of the Antichrist 
It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. John did not see the revelation of the Antichrist. He saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who gets the final say. It is not the Antichrist that's going to get the final say over the church. Because the Antichrist didn't purchase the church with his own blood. Forty-eight and too beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. What does that word mean, great king? The great king means he is all-powerful. You notice in your Bible as well that this is a proper word talking about a specific king. It is capitalized the great king. You can believe what you want to believe, but I don't believe it's talking about Hezekiah. (laughs) I believe it's talking about the great king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the everlasting father. Woo! Verse 3, God is known in her palaces for her refuge. This is the disturbing truth. That worried the foe. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Hezekiah was not trusting in the massive might of the city walls. Nor in the awesome ramparts, if you would, of the city's towers. Nor in the secret access to the water supply that Hezekiah had. If you've ever read that story, it's unbelievable how Hezekiah got water to Jerusalem. But his trust was not in the water supply. It was in the name of the Lord. There in the palace, he and his friend Isaiah would ponder the latest news from the north. They began to take notes and take into account the assessments from the military, the fearful strength of the foe and just how powerful they were. I want to tell you that it was in that moment that Hezekiah would turn his face to the wall. He would begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And when he called on the name of the Lord, he realized then and there the thing that you and I must realize right now. It's never been the size of the enemy. It's never been the power of the enemy. It's never been the foot soldiers of the enemy. But the name of the Lord is a strong and mighty tower that the righteous can run into and find safety. I'm going to read you a couple more verses here. Everybody doing all right? I'm not going to keep you all night. The third thing I want to talk to you about is the deadly terror that weakened the enemy. Verses 4 through 6, for lo, the kings were assembled. Everybody say they came together. They passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. They were troubled and they hasted away. I love this. Fear took hold upon them there. 
and pain as of a woman in travail. This is what you cannot forget. This song was written after the annihilation of Sennacherib's army. They're standing on the side of victory. And they are declaring that when the enemy came into this city and they saw the refuge of the Lord, that when the kings of the earth gathered together, they looked and fear gripped a hold of their hearts. And when fear gripped a hold of their hearts, pain came upon them as in a woman that was in travail. I want to tell you something tonight, church. If we will hold our peace and let the Lord fight our battles, we're going to find an enemy that is weeping and travailing because God will not give him access to the holy. Oh, God. There was terror that gripped the hearts of the enemy. But verse 5 said, when they saw it, they marveled. They were troubled. Man, if I had time, I'd preach a little bit of this tonight. And they, I'd like to preach a little bit sometime about when hell gets in a hurry. Just thought they wanted some. The devil just thought he wanted to mess with you. Till he came knocking and it wasn't you that answered the door. How many of you believe the angels of the Lord encamped round about them that fear him? I want to tell you that it was not the walls of the city that intimidated the Assyrians. It was the wall around the wall. It was the hedge of God's people. Oh, God. Now, I want to remind you about the story just a little bit. We know what happened in the story, if you've read it at all, on how this happened. It was not the children of Israel that destroyed the Assyrian army. The Bible said, you read it for yourself, the Bible said that the angel of the Lord descended upon the Assyrian army. Ladies and gentlemen, 185,000 men were destroyed by angelic protection. I don't understand these people that are wanting to deny the angels of the Lord that still existed. I don't understand that. I don't understand why people want to deny the power of the supernatural. I had a preacher tell me one time, he said, angel, we don't need angels anymore. I said, really? He said, that's why we got the Holy Ghost. He said in the Old Testament, they relied on angels to give a message from the Lord. He said, now we got the Holy Ghost. He speaks to us directly. I said, so after people got the Holy Ghost, angels quit, huh? Yes. You ever read Acts 12? I bet you Peter was still thankful for the angel of the Lord that reached down and woke him up out of a dream. And the message was, get up and get out of here. I'm telling you that I'm waiting for an angelic visitation. Now, I, they can come anytime they want. But I'm waiting on that one 
visitation where the angel of the Lord reaches down and taps us and says, come on, it's time to get out of here. I feel like you need to know tonight that God is still fighting for his church. That God is still fighting for his people. The angels of the Lord encamp around us. Oh, my God. I feel that if we have ever needed the supernatural in the church, we need it right now. If we have ever needed signs to confirm the word, we need it right now. I don't believe that this is a time for us to get more pretty in our preaching. I don't believe this is a time for us to get more entertaining in our services. Come on now. Sometimes I worry that we may have it just a little bit too good. I do. And I, I don't want the Lord to take any of it away. I don't. I want him to keep his hand on us. I want him to allow us as long as we can. Well, it would be an absolute shame if somebody had to get the Holy Ghost and there wasn't an organ blaring and a keyboard playing and a drummer playing and a bass player playing? Wouldn't that be awful, Brother Snow? I wish I could tell them about all the massive churches in South Asia that have the beautiful music programs and all, right? Staff so big they got staff infection. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying sometimes we've got to be careful. Because we'll start worshiping things that don't matter. And we lose sight of the things that matter the most. I know right here in North America that before we ever had padded church pews, people were getting the Holy Ghost. I know y'all can't imagine this, but people actually used to have to be uncomfortable at church and there was no air conditioning. You didn't want to wear the nicest shoes you had because you get your shoes all dusty. And God forbid, I mean really, God forbid that your sound system break down. Could you imagine the sound system Jesus had preaching to 5,000? I'm sure he had a great big huge generac generator. Fired that big diesel up. Lighting up the sky with his big old spotlights. Standing out there in his Armani suit. If he didn't have that, he wouldn't have been able to bless and break the fish and the loaves and multiply it. I mean, that's kind of what it's all predicated on, right? It's how good it looks. You know what he had? He had people which represented opportunity. He had hunger. And he had somebody that was willing to give him what they had even when it didn't look like it was enough. You know what I believe? I believe it's time for the church to get out of our comfortable pews. I believe it's time for the church to get out of our routine. I believe it's time for the church to get out of the air conditioning and start getting into the streets. We weren't called to build buildings. We were called to make disciples. I'm thankful for what God has given us. But we found out last year there was 
Something I really think surprised a lot of people. And I'm kind of surprised too. You know, last year is the first time in my life that I didn't go to camp meetings. I didn't go to conferences. Imagine the old campground felt kind of odd last year. No camp meetings. Nothing. Nobody to come in, give us a shot in the arm. Preach till there's a horse that can't talk. No choirs. Nothing. And we found out what mattered the most. I hope, I hope everything just keeps on swinging right now. It looks like we're going to have camps. We're going to have all the conferences. Everything's going to be all right. But I hope to God we don't backslide. And I'm not talking about being, I'm talking about getting back into our ways of being spoiled rotten. Can you imagine being able to stay saved without hearing camp meeting preaching? Wouldn't that be awesome? I fear, I fear that there were some people, and I'm not saying this to be ugly, okay? But I think that last year, as I've told you many times, the Lord was just exposing the wheat and the tare. And I fear for people that cannot make it without the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, when you got to have people around you all the time. Social, without the social interaction of meetings and conferences. Some people had to learn how to put blood on their own doorpost and lentil last year. And now we're at a place where why would we do that when... Pastor can pray. We're back together now. Let, just let pastor pray it. Just let the staff of the church pray it. I don't believe that God meant for us to stop turning our homes into the house of God just because we got back in the house of God. I believe it's time for us to start tearing some distractions out of our homes. Come on, somebody. I believe it's time for us to be steadfast and unmovable always. Somebody shout always. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Even when we're home and we got time to kill so we think we'll sit down, grab the remote and just cross our legs and relax for a little while. If we don't learn to have revival in our homes, we're never going to have the kind of revival that God wants us to have in our churches. See, because some people are satisfied with the hand of God resting on this church. But I want it on my house. I've seen what the enemy does attacking the church, trying to come against the church. And that's not going to happen. But what about your house? How many of us have open doors with invitations that are saying, just come on in? We don't care. Come on in. You can come in through the iPod. You can come in through the phone. You can come in through the TV. You can come in through the magazines. You can come in through the book. Oh, welcome. We just put out the welcome mat. And then we come to the house of the Lord and we wonder why it's so hard for us to break through. It takes three or four songs to warm us up. Fifteen minutes of preaching before we find this out. Well, everybody else is standing. I guess I will too. And then we miss what God's trying to speak to us. Because we don't want anybody to know where we're really living. I'm going to tell you something tonight, church. You hear me? Our homes have got to be a house 
of God. Our homes have to be a city for God to dwell in. Because when the enemy comes, he doesn't care if you paid 50000 for your house or 500000 He's not looking at whether it's brick or vinyl siding. He's looking to see if there's a gaping hole in it where the hedge of protection is not around it because the holy thing does not want to dwell around your home. I know my family and I moved into the house we're in now. Been there almost three years. We got the keys to the house on a Sunday night. And on Monday morning, I told my mother and some other folks, said, I want you to come over to the house. I think Brother Jordan was with us. I said, before we move anything in this house, I want us to anoint every door. I want us to sling oil all over this house. And before I moved my family, you hear me, I'm being serious, it's a heart attack right now. Before my family moved in there, we talked in tongues all over that house. We filled that house with the praise of the Lord. I still believe. I still believe in the power of anointing your home. I still believe in it. I believe in it. On the doorpost of my house, when you walk into my house, I've got a mezuzah there that has Deuteronomy chapter 6 written on it. When you walk in the door and you ask my kids, I do it all the time when I walk in. I I kiss the word of God as I walk through the door. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for posting the angels at the doors of our home. Thank you. I got the word right there. You know why? Because when the devil comes to my door, I want the word to meet him. When he steps to the door, I've got the Hebrew word, Shaddai, on my door. I, when he comes, I want him to know that this is a house right here that believes hero Israel. The Lord our God is one, and it is that God that defends this house. So with that, I hurry to a close. It is that God. Verse 14, if you would. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide unto death. There's no doubt when this was written that Israel felt a new lease on life. They were living in victory that was sure to be defeat. I know there's a lot of gloom and doom people that felt like last year was sure defeat. But I don't have time to listen to moaning and groaning stories about people who are talking about how bad the devil whooped them up last year. I like sitting down with people and they say, you know what, in spite of everything we went through last year, our church grew. I love hearing reports. We baptized more people during COVID than we had the last three years put together. Somebody shout, this God. He is. <laughs> this God can be rendered in your Bible as, oh, such a God. When the psalmist said, this God 
in the Hebrew tongue, it would have been as he was saying, Oh, what a God. Can you imagine that? I got to teach this and I'm out. But it might get uncomfortable for just a minute. When you look at it from this perspective at the closing, what the psalmist that was writing was really saying is, the only reason we have victory is because of this God. I want to tell you something, FPC. We're doing our best to be better than we've ever been. We are. We're doing our best. I want to be a better pastor than I've ever been. I want to help more people than I've ever helped. But if there's anything growing in this church and anything happening in this church, it's not because I've got smarter. It's because God's good to this church. And I want to stand here tonight in victory and declare, oh, what a God. When you come in here Sunday and you got to look for a seat because the place you sat last week, there's somebody in it. Don't get mad. Just say, oh, what a God. When the choir loft gets full and the pews are full and we're bringing out chairs, don't let that frustrate you. Just stand up, raise your hand, and say, what a God. When we start bringing young people into this church that haven't been raised in this and their clothes smell like cigarette smoke, they walk in here and smell like weed, but they've been in an apostolic Christian school all week. Don't you let that trouble you. Don't you let that bother you if they cuss in front of your kid. Just stand there and say, oh, what a God. Come on, somebody. Well, we have adulterers, fornicators, liars, thieves. They don't look like us. Thank God. What a God. They don't smell like us. What a God. I'm asking God to bring people. Connect us with people that looked like you did before you had a testimony. What a God. This God, he's our God. We're going to serve him till the day we die. This writing could be interpreted to say forevermore. In other words, not just until death, but as long as I can. Forevermore, he's going to be my God. I just want to know tonight if there's anybody that started but you plan on finishing. Come on. You didn't just start to start. You didn't just start for the applause of men. But you started because you plan on finishing. Let's give the Lord praise tonight. What a God. What a God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you that your hand is on your people. Lord, I know the enemy will form weapons, but it's not going to prosper. I know the enemy will come against us, Lord, but it's not going to prosper. Help us to always seek first your kingdom. Help us to always keep you first, God. 
I pray that this wouldn't be just a saint-making church. Let it be a disciple-making church. God, I don't want us to continue to just birth people that are happy to be on a pew. I want people who are going to pursue after you and chase after you with all they've got. Let us be a place, Lord, where the broken feel like they can be healed here. Let this be a house where the sick can be healed, where the dead can be raised, where the lame can walk and the dumb can talk. Let it be in this house. And God, you'll receive all the glory, the honor, the praise. I thank you, Lord, for all that have gathered here tonight. For all that have joined us online, Lord, that you would speak a right now word to somebody. Help us, God, to put you as our number one priority. In Jesus' name, don't lift your hand from us. Keep your hand on us and your angels around us. And for this, we'll give you praise and glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, let the church say amen.